What's going on, you joyously jubilant Jaboas? Welcome to this week's episode of Total Pod Mode. My name is James, also known as Mr. Bames, and I'm joined, as always, by the wondrous Will, also known as Hoodafunk. Hey, yo! Back again, James, for another episode, another week, another episode of Total Pod Mode. Good to be here with you, buddy. Yeah, always a pleasure, my friend. What is a Jaboa? I need to know. You can't just drop that on me and uh, don't go into any further explanation. So Jaboa is like a little like rodent type creature with big old ears and kind of kangaroo looking legs. That sounds pretty cute. Yeah, it's pretty adorable. How do you spell that? Does it start with a D or something? No, no. So it's J-E-R-B-O-A. Oh, wow. That is quite the creature. It's, it's weird that the illustrations of it have massive ears and then all the... Oh, wait, no, there are some ones with long ears as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Where is its front legs? I can't see them. It's got little, like, T-Rex arms, isn't it? Okay. Yeah, I like it. It looks like a Pokemon. Oh, mate, yeah. Go Jaboa! <laughs> it sounds like a Pokemon. Anyway, sorry for that diversion there. I just couldn't move past it. <laughs> I'm, trying to, I'm trying to think of something that you can say Jaboa with that's, like, moving on. Like, cause it sounds like Jaboa, but that doesn't really work. Do you know what I mean? Jaboa, we get more distracted. Let's move on to... Yeah. It's like something yeah, I mean, like yeah. before. Jaboa, before, Jaboa, Jaboa. Let's roll with it. Yeah, I'm going to keep that in. <laughs> Jaboa, we get too distracted with that. Thanks, Will. Uh, let's tell you what's coming up in this week's episode. So we've got our usual catch-up. We've got a bit of gaming news. Uh, a couple of speculative ones this week. And then uh, just news of a good success story. What's not to like, right? Before we round out the episode with a new chapter of Completionist Corner. What are we playing this week? Well, stick around to find out. Oh, we've got suspense in this one, loaded. Yeah, you've got to wait till we get there, baby. But before that, let's hit them socials. You can, as always, find the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts by searching for Total Pod Mode. We also post regular video content of our playthroughs, stream highlights, as well as the podcast on our YouTube channel, Total Pod Mode. You can also find us on Twitter slash X by searching for at Total Pod Mode or one word. Or you can find me at Hoodafunk on X and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Hoodafunk. And you can find me on X at Mr. Bames and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Mr. Bames underscore TPM. So Will, lay it on me, man. What have you been playing this week? So this week I've actually had quite a productive week in terms of gaming. I've been able to do quite a few things, playing with the boys. Shout out to Jem and Liam. We actually picked up Elden Ring this time round, and not only did we pick up Elden Ring, we just got fed up with the goddamn poor networking connection issues that we're so sick and tired of dealing with. We actually downloaded the unofficial seamless co-op patch, uh, which allows you to actually connect off of the servers. You connect to a different Steam account. It replaces all of your save files and things, so you kind of have to start again. But it does enable you to play very seamlessly with friends. Not only seamlessly, you can have things like two torrents or even three torrents. So we had myself, Jem and Liam all riding around on our own weird kind of demonic horsey thing. Oh, nice. And how far apart can you go from one another in this? Is it like, could you be in like Kaelid and Jem and Liam are fucking in, in the north in the mountainous areas? We didn't test it out to quite that extreme, but none of us were particularly conscious of sticking close to each other as well. So there were multiple instances where we we're all off doing our own things in the starting area and there was no sort of discernible connection issues or anything like that. Fair, that's good to know. It was seamless. Uh, the fact that we could all join, it has its own unique items that they've actually put into the lore of the game, ones that allow you to enable other players to connect to you as well as join other players' world. And it's really quite simple to set up. You just go into some kind of text any files inside the mod files and you just make sure you have the same password. But there's loads of guides out there to make it super simple to follow as well. So uh, yeah, after 
maybe about sort of 15, half an hour of tinkering, we were able to get that set up and it was a great time. We also kind of elevated the experience a little bit by all downloading a randomizer mods and then sharing the seed between us. So not only were we playing Elden Ring free player seamless, we were doing it with completely randomized enemies, items, boxes, everything. Really, really fun. Tree Sentinel in the main open worlds was one of those uh, guys that's uh, doing the boats, kind of like paddling the boat oh, along. Yeah, got, yeah, but yeah. it was a high level late game one of those, so he had way too much health for me to even bother trying to kill him starting off. And they, they summon in stuff as well, so that might kind of been fun right in the opening area. I didn't actually bother to defeat that one, I've got to say. I'm just kind of pushing through for the time being, trying to get some levels up. So we quickly pushed on to Margit, and Margit turned out to be Leonine Misbegotten. So that was a pretty straightforward fight, actually. Not too bad. Does the health of the enemies scale up to three people when you're in three people mode? It does, yeah. they okay, It gets cool. difficult, just like the uh, the base game does. It kind of increases that health as well. Nice, though. But Leon and Misbegotten, as you say, early game boss. So having it early game is uh, at least scale-wise a good thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got lucky there. So, you know, the initial boss that's... I can't remember what its name is, but it's like a tangle of bodies with loads of different arms and bits on it that you fight... And you kind of get defeated by on your first playthrough. Yeah, the uh, the uh, grafted something. Grafted Scion. Thank you. Right. I, thought, I was I was thinking gilded. I knew Scion. I couldn't remember grafted. Yeah, yeah grafted they love Scion. to graft in this game. Uh, yeah, so that ended up being I think it was like the Black Blade Assassin or something like that. So you didn't oh, even damn, see yeah. it spawn in. I was just kind of wandering around, wondering where the boss is, and then I got my throat cut. <laughs> yeah nice yeah just get one shot yeah yeah and i'm trying to think so in the tutorial area you originally fight just one of the godric knights right i think I yeah, hardest boss in the game yeah <laughs> uh that's complete sarcasm for anyone that didn't pick that up <laughs> uh so this it's very much kind of like a hey muck around with the fighting mechanics of the game with this really easy boss and once again i can't actually remember the name of the person who it turned out to be but that was actually quite a difficult fight they were another sort of glowy dark person with glowing red lights around them and that was quite a tough boss they had a bunch of health as well so i was really having to kind of do lots of stance breaking and critical hits and things. Oh, that makes it a bit more of a challenge, I suppose. We're still very much kind of in the baby steps of things because we got past uh, Leonine and then for the rest of the game, we've still got all of that to explore. We didn't make our way into Leonia. We did explore that southern part of the map and checked out a few more bosses there. And we're just having a real good time, just experiencing having these really tough enemies spawn out of nowhere. You know when you're in Stormhill and you have that sudden gust of wind and all the dogs fall out the sky? Yeah, This yeah, time yeah. it just spawns randomised enemies, so anything can fall out of the sky. And that's really fun as well. Could kill you a lot, but very nice. I like it. Yeah, yeah. It's adding kind of like a new level of challenge to the game, and it's also making it feel really fun as well, because you don't get bored of fighting the same enemy whatsoever. If anything, you're just constantly trying to mitigate the fact that you've got... Enemies that might not be particularly balanced to kind of come at you as a mob, but it's fun. It's good times. And if you kill it, you get a shitload of souls, so worth it. Actually, I think what they've done is they have kept the soul values for some of the earlier things. I haven't noticed that I'm able to like jump up levels particularly fast. Um, I kind of need to experiment with that a little bit more. Interesting, because you have only done an early game boss in the early game, so maybe that's why. Uh, yeah. I'll go kill that boat thing, see how much that's worth. That's a good idea. Yeah, I should probably try that tonight or something because they're quite easy to fight bosses. A, just going to have a lot of health. It's going to take me like half an hour to beat him, <laughs> I think. But no, it's, it's a really fun way to play Elden Ring. I would definitely recommend that, uh, you know, if Elden Ring's feeling a bit stale for you and you're kind of fed up of not being able to still properly play with your mates, then download yourself the uh, seamless co-op player from Nexus Mods and uh, have a blast with your friends. And other than that this week, uh, I got a little tired of Call of Duty. <gasps> I gotta say, I got fed up. Maybe I just had one too many DMZ defeats and uh, I kind of lost 
lost my interest a little bit. So I was looking for something online to play, something new, something fresh. And I actually ended up going back and find something old and crusty, but uh, you know, <laughs> out of the dirt comes a gem. Uh, I actually picked up Chivalry 2. Nice. A game that I know that you enjoyed one release. Yeah, I put like a good, good, good handful of hours into it. Not like masses of amounts, but maybe like a good 20, 30 hours, something like that. Yes. I remember you talking about the, the joys of the combat. Was that still the case when you came back to it? Yeah, absolutely. I think that the game definitely still stands up in terms of the weapons that you've got. I think that the controls work really well, the best out of some of the other comparable games, like uh, Chivalry 1, for instance, or Mordhau. Just very quickly, were you on controller or keyboard and mouse? Uh, I was on keyboard and mouse for this one. I prefer yeah, to use keyboard and mouse too. because you're able to look around you much faster. And that is really key because this is the sort of game where you do get those occasional one-on-one -on -one brawls, but you need to kind of keep a lot of spatial awareness around you as well because you can very quickly become overwhelmed by enemies. You can play this game in first person or third person as well. And I probably should just like explain a little bit before we go too deep that it's a like a medieval warfare battle simulator, basically, where you play as infantrymen, bowmen, spearmen, knights, uh, engineer people that can place down like pointy barricades and stuff like that. And a lot of the missions in it are just online multiplayer castle sieges or you'll be storming a beach or you'll be trying to attack a prison and rescue a, a captured war prisoner medieval shit, basically yeah exactly yeah, yeah. Good, there's good just times. all these sort of old-timey scenarios so there's all these different types of scenarios that you can find yourself in and they're really quite fun to play and they're very varied as well now there is a good number of them to go through you've got various different attack options with your limited arsenal depending on which class you pick but out of all of them you can always do an overhead swing a stab a big wide swing and then you've also got options to block options to counter options to parry there's a kick too isn't there there is a kick yeah you use your kick to break a block and it's kind of like a rock paper scissors mechanic where if you get hit by a sword your next move should be to jab them you can do like a short jab and that will break their timing so that it'll open them up for you to get the next hit instead which will then force them to block rather than keep on attacking and if you block too much then you'll get kicked and then you open up yourself to getting attacks loads more times and obviously just attacking blindly is just going to mean that you'll end up in this kind of never-ending block attack block attack trading and that's not typically good either you kind of want to avoid doing that just because you're eventually going to get mobbed as i said before there is a lot of kind of forces pushing in and these maps move around a lot so if you just stand there playing with one person you're very likely to either get mobbed or get your kill stolen because your whole squad has absolutely no honor whatsoever and will just charge down a man like eight versus one. Oh, that sounds personal, man. <laughs> it gets brutal in chivalry. <laughs> it's a very violent game as well. So, uh, you know, there's lots of dismemberment and beheading going on. So, yeah, when you see kind of like a big melee of fighters and stuff, it's quite normal to see body parts flying and kind of lots of chunky noises happening. Oh, yeah, I remember poking people's faces off with my spear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, good times. <laughs> you can even do really tasteful things like behead someone, pick up their head and then beat someone to death with it or just chuck it into the battle field as like a kind of like a uh, breaking their will sort of move so it'll be brilliant i don't know if you can do it i'm gonna try it if i ever install it again right can you throw it up in the air and then like if you perfectly time a kick can you kick their head across the battlefield because that would just be so swag i think it's the type of thing that the game would definitely allow for but it would have to be a very practice maneuver yeah i don't think that yeah. would be easy to achieve by any means because 
all of the moves in that game are very intentionally slow and clunky in a way, which gives you plenty of time to think in combat scenarios between what's your next move. Do you block? Do you step backwards? Do you dodge backwards? You might even be able to like duck underneath the move as well. So there's all sorts of different options. Really fun game. You play it with the expectation of dying a lot, but uh, you also get to chop up a bunch of guys in a really satisfying fashion. So no complaints from me. What's not to love? So I've just been having a genuinely really fun time with that game myself, man. But uh, other than that, I don't really have any great tales to tell just yet. Uh, Hopefully I'll carry on playing this one through and maybe we'll come back with something later. But for now, I'm going to pass this one back to you. So I've got a couple of uh, sort of quickish updates and then something that i actually promised a couple of weeks ago i've started so i played a little bit more remnant 2 oh very nice okay yeah i i I completed it the other week as i say and i re-rolled my campaign uh so i actually this time started off in the world where i finished last time like the final world i got i got the start of this time and i got an alternate version so i've got completely different main boss to look forward to at the end different loot different map good times because the game has quite a random mechanic built into it almost maybe even more so than the previous one so it sounds like you're going to be able to have quite a few varied playthroughs even if you're playing through the same game as the same character. Yeah, no, at least two on every world, as far as I can see. Maybe more. Could be awesome. more. I don't know. But that's I haven't really played too much of that this week. That's just a little bit. And then cast your mind back to an episode of Total Pod Mode sometime in January. I spoke about a little side-scroller fighting game called The Nine Monkeys of Shaolin. I do remember you talking about that. Yes, yeah, vaguely. It was a long time ago, like over seven months ago at this point. Um, I never actually finished that this time round. I had finished it before, as I think I said on that episode. Yeah. Uh, I, I just randomly finished that off in a couple of hours. Didn't take me very long to finish it. Did you find yourself surprised that you completed it? Did you know you were kind of at the cusp of beating it? Or did you just pick it up thinking that you still had a few, you know, like maybe like sort of five or six hours to go? No, so I thought I was half way through which was accurate but what i didn't take into account was that i finished it in four hours right okay okay so i'd only put in a couple of hours or whatever but i knew i was halfway through the story but in my mind when i went to play it i didn't think it was that short right i remember being like an an all day game rather than like a a couple of hours yeah yeah so that just surprised me but yeah that was fun Uh, nothing groundbreaking it's still an excellent side scroller fighting beat-em-up game good times yeah i didn't realize it had new game plus oh that's cool Cool to see in a game that's that style. Exactly. So I may well go back in and do a new game plus run, see... I mean, I assume I keep all my upgrades and stuff, so maybe I can actually max out my character. I wonder just how much effort they put into that new game plus. It would be cool to see, you know, some new enemies or different attack patterns or something. You never know. It may just be kind of buffed up enemies instead. Exactly. I'll um, I'll probably check it out at some point, so maybe we'll talk about it again in another six, seven months. Who knows? But uh, yeah, that was quite a random one. But the main thing that I've played this week outside of Completionist Corner, of course, which we'll get into later, is uh, you may remember a couple of weeks ago I finished Bound by Flame. And I said that I was thinking of doing another Spiders game because I fancied them. Oh, yes. And I think I even mentioned Mars Warlogs by name. I can't remember if it made the edit or not, but needless to say, I, I started Mars Warlogs. Nice one. That is not a game that I've heard of at all. How are you finding that? And what is it? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'd played it before back in the day on Xbox. So it was the way it plays isn't a big surprise to me. But what it is, is it's another sort of RPG in the style of a Greedfall or the Technomancer, which is uh, another Spiders RPG that was actually the sequel to this. Right. Oh, okay. okay. Set in the same universe. Set in the same universe as Technomancer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. Because the Technomancers are, it is a class, right? It is the mage class of yeah. the game. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so basically the, the basic premise is that um, you're obviously on the planet Mars. Uh, there's a war going on and you start off as a prisoner of war called Roy. And uh, at the start of the game, you just think he's just a, like a 
you know clearly quite a tough guy but he's a sort of just a normal guy and there's this kid called innocence because everyone's name is like a trait but yeah but this uh this kid innocence like he's been he he enlisted for the, the war was fighting um got captured and is now a prisoner of war and um his first day in the prisoner of war camp basically there's this um a character called Fatso. Nice. So yeah, his name kind of does what it says in the tin. He's a bit of a bald, creepy, sort of like horny guy. <laughs> and uh, basically like when Innocence arrives in the prisoner of war camp, he's just all over it and is um, looking to uh, beat on him, shall we say. Gave him the old one-two beat down. Um, and basically before anything can happen, Roy sort of intimidates them and scares them off. Right, okay. And so you and Innocence team up and uh, you want to escape the prisoner of war camp and go on your merry way. I think it's quite a short game. I'm about six hours in and I feel like I'm over halfway through. Okay, okay. Which is absolutely fine. I've no problem with that Yeah, no, I, I kind of miss the days of eight to 12 hour games uh, a little bit, or at least when they were kind of the majority of games. It's, uh, it's nice to be able to actually complete something once in a while. Exactly, yeah. But yeah, so the, f- the first chapter of the game follows uh, you and Innocence planning how to escape the prisoner of war camp. And then I'm on chapter two now, which is... Uh, We've escaped and we're now looking for Innocence's parents. They're either dead or missing. We're not sure yet. Okay, that doesn't bode well. Doesn't bode well, no. And it kind of works mechanically and almost sort of in every way combat-wise to what I was describing in Bound by Flame. You can sort of go one of three routes with the combat. You can go more warrior-based, more rogue-based, and then mage-based, which is technomancy, as we've already sort of mentioned. Okay. But it's done quite differently. So warrior class is just melee so that's quite standard but the rogue class is you can get a nail gun and it's almost functions as like a ranged weapon so it's like a gun that's interesting okay and you also have things like you can throw sand in people's eyes to <laughs> stun them yeah okay yeah that's pretty roguish and then obviously the technomancy tree is um as the name suggests it's electricity um i haven't really f***ed with the technomancy too much because you get it relatively late in your development as a character right yeah you get it after defeating the boss of chapter one who is a technomancer okay yeah yeah and i'm not worried about spoilers because this game came out and i think 2014 maybe even before so i think i'm probably good yeah i would say so yeah and also i'm not sure how well this game did I like to think it did well because it's quite good, but you just never know with these things. I know Technomancer didn't do brilliantly. No, it didn't at all. That's an absolutely kind of like a bargain bin fine Technomancer is for sure. Exactly, yeah. But I think it's really good fun. It's got the same sort of challenge in a way as Bound by Flame did. It's not as hard, but it's quite unforgiving, the combat. Um, Although admittedly, um, I might be being sloppy because I'm not playing this on the hard difficulty I, I didn't fancy going through the challenge like i did with bound by flame again i just kind of wanted to play this one through yeah play it as an experience yeah exactly because i never finished it back in the day on xbox so i just want to see what the story plays out and it's been good fun uh, nothing too groundbreaking but a very good spiders game and uh, hopefully i'll get that finished in the next week or so in terms of the uh the combat in the game what type of weapons are you using outside of the nail gun is it kind of like uh, swords and shields and stuff no so we're talking things like lead pipes wrenches Ooh, very industrial sort of um homemade machete type things light tubes that sort of deal light tubes like kind of lightsaber style things or just you're just bashing people with fluorescent light bulbs kind of somewhere in between <laughs> okay yeah. like shit lightsabers basically Nah, it's not it's more like uh light tubes like you get on the ceiling at school it's more like that just think sort of, because um, you're a prisoner of war, right? So just think things that you've like chucked together out of junk or things that you find lying around. There of might course, be better weapons course. later, but... And I should say it's, it's kind of, it's not quite steampunk, but it's that sort of vibe. It's not fantasy or anything like that. Okay, okay. So yeah, I mean, 
getting your way out of a prison camp, it makes sense that you're currently using shivs and things like that. I just wonder if it kind of progresses further. I'll have to let you know. At the moment, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we just we just sell knives, you know? We, we, we have swords right here. You don't need to keep on just uh, kind of melding rocks and sticks together to make bludgeoning weapons. We've got a hammer right here for you, buddy. But there's no money in the game. You use serum. Ooh, okay. okay. And if you're doing an evil playthrough, you can sort of suck serum out of your enemies because you never kill anyone. You just knock them out. Oh, right. Okay, okay. Like hu human enemies anyway. Like en monster enemies you kill. Do you think that's an age rating thing or what? It's either something to do with the law where killing someone is like big taboo or it's to do with the intended character arc. Yeah. Or it's just a fun mechanic and I'm reading too much <laughs> into it. Who knows? But yeah, solid fun. Looking forward to getting that finished. Nice. I'm looking forward to hearing more uh, perhaps next week. But with that, I think that about does it for the catch up for this week. So why don't we move on to the gaming news? So with our first news story this week, relatively fresh off the presses at the time of recording, we have a new rumour surrounding a potential Borderlands 4 release. Exciting news! Yes, very exciting. Or potentially, at least. So according to our good friends at Game Rant, there is a rumour going around online that suggests Borderlands 4 will launch Holiday 2023 with a new character called Ayumi. Okay. Yeah, unsurprising that uh, it's a new character called Ayumi, but is that because they don't know the other characters? Or are we perhaps thinking that the other three characters are going to be pre-existing ones so i don't know about anything like that i think this has really come from the fact that this whole story has come from someone's linkedin profile we've had similar spoilers in the past we've certainly had a similar rumor in the past so this one comes from actress angie jolie who claims that she is playing the aforementioned character ayumi in borderlands 4 with the game itself set for a holiday 2023 release angie jolie not to be confused with angelina jolie as usual with speculation like this fans should take the news with a pinch of salt after all there's been no announcement or anything like that and it'd be a slightly odd move given that borderlands is quite a big franchise however there is previous with this there is a precedent fallout 4 was only announced at e3 2015 before being released later the same year so who knows this could be a thing but what do you think to that man Exciting news, as you say. I'm a huge fan of Borderlands, so... Yeah, I think I'm kind of like a growing fan of Borderlands. The more I play it, the more I enjoy it. And uh, going back and doing that as part of the game challenge last year was, was a really fun experience. Borderlands 2 and pre-sequel, I've played bits of and really enjoyed. So uh, I, they kind of fell off a little bit with Borderlands 3, as I'm sure you'll agree. But I'm looking forward to seeing what they do with Borderlands 4. This could be the turnaround. I actually disagree. I don't think they fell off a bit. I think they fell off a lot. A lot. <laughs> right, okay. Yeah, fair deuce. <laughs> well, I mean, this may well be the turnaround that the series needs, you know? Hey, I've still got faith in them, weirdly. I mean, Borderlands 3 is not that bad, but it's just so much worse than the others. Yeah, I think that that's the issue there, isn't it? It's kind of the uh, the black sheep of the franchise. For well, in my opinion, very much so, yeah. But hopefully this is going to be cool. Um, I, Obviously, this is all very new, so there's no footage, there's no pictures, no artwork or anything like that, unless you want to go look at her LinkedIn profile, picture of her. <laughs> No, this is purely just kind of pulling this one out of the air from a LinkedIn profile. I <laughs> know, I'll take it. So yeah, so a little bit speculative, but very cool if there's a Borderlands 4 on the way, and even cooler if it releases later this year. So I guess watch out for the game shows coming up. I think there's a PAX soon. Uh, yeah, we could well see a PAX West demo or some sort yeah. of gameplay footage. Yeah, it'd be cool. Exactly. So who knows? Maybe it could just be released and then in there. Didn't Apex Legends do something similar? Was it Apex Legends? They like announced the game and released it two weeks later or something? It could well have been. Uh, I'm not sure, to be honest with you, if that was the uh, if that was the game. But uh, I would imagine that, to be honest with you, kind of shadow dropping something like that, especially with a franchise as big as Borderland, I'd be a little surprised if they did that. But uh, who knows? I think that it's promising that they're saying that we could see it towards the end of this year. 
Although I've got to say, as we're kind of getting there anyway, it is a little surprising that we're only hearing about this now. That's the only thing that makes me doubt the authenticity, just a tiny bit. Is it if I was expecting Borderlands in December, January, then I'd be kind of expecting to have heard about it or at least seen uh, some sort of teaser video or something. Who knows? Time will tell. So with our second news story today, perhaps unsurprisingly, given the reception it's received from its fans, Baldur's Gate 3 is the highest rated game of the year so far with a Metacritic score of 97, pipping another game release this year, The Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom, which sits on a score of 96. That's really saying something given the amount of sales that Tears of the Kingdom pulled. Exactly. But at this point in time, the game is so popular that Larry and the developers of Baldur's Gate 3 have had to release a patch that unlocks the cap on save files because people were doing so many activities in the game that their save files, specifically the personal story databases, were becoming too large and were causing issues in the game, which I think is quite funny. Oh, that sounds a little bit like some of the issues that Skyrim had. Once you'd sort of interacted with so many people, your save file would get so large that it actually started to affect the performance. I thought that was Oblivion rather than Skyrim, wasn't it? I think Skyrim had that same issue. But yeah, no, this is uh, just so many activities you can do. It doesn't surprise me, really. But obviously, this is another big issue with the fact that it's already a 150 gigabyte game on Steam, at least. So much needed fix, this one, I think. Yeah. But yeah, man... The basic news story is that this game is doing really, really well. We sort of teased it, I think, in last week's episode. We were talking about how they're getting lots of praise for not doing... Microtransactions, DLC. Yeah, exactly. Just everything being there on release. And it seems that people are taking full advantage of that. I've seen some footage of sort of the character creating things like that. The depth is pretty insane. It looks amazing, yeah. There's a lot of different races to even begin with, let alone all the different customization options once you've finally decided who you want to be. Exactly, and uh, shout-outs to my friend George, who has actually got the game. Uh, he was telling me that there's all sorts of crazy shit, like genital selection. And... <laughs> right, okay. Well, I mean, hey, you got to f*** a bear at some point. You might as well choose what your dick looks like. Exactly, but no, like, he was saying stuff like Volva A, Volva B. Wow, like, so... <laughs> really? Like, I don't, I don't know whether like, that was done for comedic effect, but that's the sort of level of detail okay. that apparently this character creator's got. And uh, he hasn't played too much of it, at least when I spoke to him about it last, but it sounds to me like the way the game works is quite interesting. It seems like it's very tabletop based. Oh yeah, yeah, as it always has been. No, but I mean like super so. So like there aren't really mobs that you encounter in the wild. It's all sort of events, interactions and stuff that all have to be played out. Specific things like he fell into someone's trap and then had to like fight them underground and shit like that. Right, as opposed okay. to just a random overworld encounter where they might then set a trap. That's very cool. Certainly sounded interesting to me, working on old mechanics, but sort of bringing them into the modern day. So yeah. It all sounds yeah. very interesting. Have you seen much of this? Only about as much as it sounds like you've seen as well. Some very vague gameplay. I've been looking mostly at some of the sort of, I guess kind of like, trailer footage just to kind of get an idea of what the game actually looks like and it does look seriously impressive the graphics look really nice uh i've actually been on twitter for the last few days seeing so many people say that they were initially sleeping on this game and now they're gonna go pick it up i'm really interested to see just how many people actually do wind up enjoying it if they're maybe perhaps expecting a different game i mean given that this is released in close proximity to diablo 4 i'm just interested to see how many people kind of buy this being completely uninformed and expecting a more kind of actiony combat style game as opposed to as you mentioned the more kind of tabletop thing that this could well be yeah i reckon that will probably catch a couple people out given the fact that this game is kind of rapidly growing in popularity yeah, i won't lie I i'm tempted gotta say yeah you're not alone buddy me too 
I probably would if I had actually completed Diablo 4 at this point and was making better progress there. But uh, yeah, I think that I need to kind of uh, complete some games on the list before I go in for this one. Yeah, to be fair, I think I'm kind of in the same boat. Not so much with games that I haven't finished yet, but there's a lot of games coming up very yeah. soon. Uh, you know, I've got Starfield in two weeks. Then there's Lies of P. Then there's Lords of the Fallen. Armored Core. Armored Core at some point in the mix there as well. So might be on the bit more of a back burner this one, but definitely more hyped for it than I was having never played Baldur's Gate 1 or 2. So, yeah, well done, Larian. And with our third news story this week, back to being a bit more speculative with what we're talking about. So, Tekken 8 has just been age-rated in South Korea, 15 for anyone that's interested, which fans are hoping means that a release date is on the horizon. Now, this speculation comes uh, not too long after Tekken 8's closed network testing had finished, which by all accounts is very successful. Good stuff. Refreshing to hear. Now, fans have long speculated that Tekken 8 would be released in late 2024. However, this age rating has led many to believe, slash hope, that the game may in fact be released sooner, perhaps even early 2024, or even in time for Christmas 2023, Will. Oh, I mean, I feel like that's a bold hope, but, uh, you know, I, I can't not get behind it. I'd be quite quite happy to see it release Christmas 2023 as well. Very bold indeed and it's probably just wishful thinking given that Street Fighter 6 wasn't released that long ago I think a couple of months at this point I can't remember exactly and Mortal Kombat 1 is coming in September. Yeah I mean again yeah two massive fighting franchises Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat 1 I don't think 2023 could take a Tekken 8 honestly. I think it'd burst I can't take it anymore I just want to die. Yeah so who knows but uh I thought this is just quite a little bit of a fun one. I don't know really how much credence you can take from something being age rated, meaning that it's like here now soon. But uh, I didn't realize Tekken 8 was even remotely close, if I'm being perfectly honest with you. I thought it was still sort of maybe a, like, and I guess this kind of corroborates this, but I thought it was still maybe at least a year away. So I'd be quite surprised to see it coming out this year for sure. Early 2024, I, c- I could probably see that. But 2023, though, seems very ridiculous. I think so, yeah. I hadn't actually gone in to look at the exact release date or even kind of like rough release date for this title, to be honest with you. But I have actually coincidentally seen quite a bit of footage of some of the new characters that they're proposing and some kind of like demo footage of their movesets. And I've been really impressed so far. Looks like really good stuff. Yeah, I agree. The limited stuff I've seen looked very cool. I think I only saw one new character. A lot of the ones that were shown there were characters that have been in quite a few of them. Some that were only came out in Tekken 7, but we obviously played Tekken 7 very recently and that uh, sort of reinvigorated my love for Tekken a little bit. So, yeah, I'm right there with you for sure. So yeah, so I'm going to be following Tekken 8, but uh, yeah, I don't see it coming out this year though. Yeah, I think wishful thinking, but uh, you know, I, I can't not get behind it at the same time. We can have a dream, can't we? With that speculation out of the way, we come to the end of the news for this week. So now why don't we move on to Completionist Corner. Here we go for the Completionist's Corner. So as I mentioned at the top of the show, this week we are starting a new adventure in Completionist Corner, and it's actually revisiting a universe that we've already done before. Now what could that be, I hear you ask? Suspense. Now you may remember, in our very first chapter of Completionist Corner, no less, that we uh, we started off a little adventure in the world of Mass Effect. Well, Will and I thought it was appropriate to continue the saga this week, so we're starting with Mass Effect 2. That's right, James. It's about goddamn time. It certainly is. So for a full rundown of the events of the first game, why not check out episodes 21 through 26? 
It's a good time. And I actually managed to record quite a bit of my playthrough over on YouTube as well, so go over and check that out if you're interested in catching up on the backstory. But as I say, for a full rundown, go check that out. But to briefly recap, in Mass Effect 1, we, Commander Shepard, were tasked with defeating the Road Spectre Saren and his army of Geth after they had thwarted a routine extraction mission on the human colony of Eden Prime. After a lot of intergalactic sleuthing, we discovered that Saren was, in fact, just a puppet for a larger threat, the Reapers an all-powerful race of sentient synthetics who lie dormant in dark space before awaking to wipe out all organic life in the universe every 50,000 years. The Reapers are revered by synthetics as gods, which is why the Geth, who are a race of synthetics, follow the Reapers' orders, carrying out their bidding without question. A single Reaper, known as Sovereign, had been sent ahead of the others to activate a dormant Mass Effect relay on the Citadel, the main political hub of the Alliance and other Council races which would send out the signal to wake up the remaining dormant reapers and allow them to warp directly to the citadel to begin their purge. Sovereign hoped to achieve this with the help of Saren, but why would Saren aid in the destruction of all organic life? Well, it turns out he had been indoctrinated by Sovereign, believing they would keep him alive if he proved himself useful. Our shepherds were able to assemble a crew and thwart Sovereign's plans, defeating both Saren and Sovereign in the Battle of the Citadel albeit using very different methods along the way, given our different characters and playstyles. So, the protagonist of my story goes by the name of Gillian Shepard. She is a female character who I believe grew up on a planet full of poverty and was kind of like a lone survivor in some of her later battle scenarios when she eventually ended up joining the, the space military, uh, or what I think is known as the Alliance in this game. And uh, as you're probably aware, or perhaps not, this game has two quite drastic routes that you can take, two quite polarised routes, either the Paragon or Renegade path. For my playthrough of Mass Effect 1 and continuing into Mass Effect 2, I will be taking the Renegade option. So expect lots of wild cards, lots of drawn guns, people that we could have perhaps saved, but instead decided to shoot for some sort of monetary gain, perhaps. A lot of violence. A lot of violence. A, a lot, lot of, of it unnecessary, unnecessary violence. <laughs> It's such a fun playthrough, man. And uh, then I'll hand it over to James to talk a little bit about the way through his playstyle. Yes, and my character is uh, a chap by the name of Julius Shepard. And uh, I'm the complete antithesis of uh, Gillian Shepard. My character is the perfect paragon. The epitome of goodness and justice. Exactly. A spacer by birth, born on the ships, knows nothing but a life in space. And he was a war hero. Basically single-handedly held off enemies while a bunch of civilians were saved and this town didn't fall because of my work. Just an all-round good guy. I think at the start of my game, Gillian says something like, yeah, I was the only one that was focused on survival. The rest of them were just worried about the shitty situation that they they were in. <laughs> yeah. No empathy whatsoever. Whereas my character is uh, empathy's their middle name. A lot of good men died that day. <laughs> Very motivational, never leaves anyone behind, always takes the peaceful route if possible, but isn't afraid to kill when it comes to it. So with our characters retold to those that have been there before or told to the new listeners, we begin the game and uh, Mass Effect 2 starts only a month or so after the events of the first game. And despite us revealing the threat of the Reapers and physically defeating one, the Council has decided to bury their heads in the sand and deny that the Reapers are real, blaming the events of the first game solely on Saren and the Geth. Probably trying to avoid sparking panic amongst the alien population, given that uh, there's this kind of evil alien space force out there plotting away at their demise. That's exactly their motives, yeah. But it's uh, very cowardly, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, the Council definitely don't come on as the, uh, like, kind of, the most logical uh, of decision makers in that game. They kind of pulled a lot of bullshit in Mass Effect 1, if you ask me. <laughs> well, you killed them, so... 
<laughs> yeah, I mean they paid the price. <laughs> so they won't be they won't you won't worry about that in your game at least. <laughs> oh dear. But with this in mind, we begin the game on our ship, the Normandy, on our way to clear out a small Geth settlement at the request of the council. Like the first game, we are starting off with what should be a routine shakedown run. What could possibly go wrong? Picking up something on the long-range scanner. Unidentified vessel. Hmm, looks like a cruiser. Doesn't match any known signatures. Cruiser is changing course. Now on intercept trajectory. Can't be. Stealth systems are engaged. There's no way a Geth ship could possibly- It's not the Geth. Brace for evasive maneuvers! As the laser beam from this unknown vessel cuts through the Normandy like a hot knife through butter, Joker, our trusty pilot, tries his best to get the ship out of harm's way, but to no avail. At this point, a member of our crew rushes to Shepard for instructions on what to do next. Yes, and for me, this member of crew was uh, my love interest from the first game, Liara. And I'm curious to know who it was for you, Will, because uh, you didn't really pursue the love interest route, did you? No, I didn't actually, no. So I think that this was actually Caden Alenko who came to me and asked what not to do, and I just told him to piss off and get in the rescue pod. Makes sense that it was Caden. Despite the fact that I just gave him the cold shoulder after like the second mission that I took him on. And then just left him <laughs> on the Normandy for the rest of the adventure. Yeah, but you saved him over Ashley, I guess. That's so. true, but I mean, yeah, who the f*** would do the opposite of that? Yeah, racist bitch. Shepard, who is in the process of getting a distress beacon sent out, whilst simultaneously trying to put out fires with an extinguisher, advises his crew to get to the escape pods and evacuate as many crew members as possible. Shepard is told that Joker refuses to budge whilst he tries to save the Normandy, so Shepard says that they will deal with Joker whilst the rest of the crew gets to safety. The Normandy at this point is pretty much done for as the thrusters begin to dull and the ship begins floating listlessly in space. Shepard makes their way through the wreckage, including walking down the middle of the bridge, which is now completely exposed to the elements, to get to the cockpit and save Joker. I always love a little anti-gravity staring out into space section, and when you look up through that section, you can see the surface of the planet still from orbit. It's very, very cool visual effects. Yeah, and for me, it's also the silence. Yeah, the fact that the sound completely cuts out, obviously, space being a vacuum. Very cool, cool effects. Very cool stuff, yeah. And uh, I, actually, I remember thinking back to when I first did pick up Mass Effect 2 and maybe played like the first couple hours all those years back on Xbox as well. I was really impressed by the visuals of it and they still really do hold up. I know that they've obviously been tweaked for the legendary edition, but it's still very visually impressive. You get a very good sense of scale of the planet down below. So Joker takes a little convincing as he is adamant that he can still save the Normandy. However, Shepard talks him round and is able to get him to the escape pod. Just as it looks like everyone is going to make it, the mysterious vessel fires off another laser beam to finish the Normandy off. Seeing that there is no way to save both themselves and Joker, Shepard ejects the escape pod from the outside, saving Joker but dooming themselves. The scene ends with Shepard clawing at their helmet as they begin to suffocate due to a lack of oxygen, eventually just floating lifelessly in space. And that, dear listeners, is the end of Mass Effect 2. Well, it was a good run. You know, a good playthrough. A little bit short, I would say, but uh, I'm looking forward to checking out Mass Effect 3. I wonder what happens when uh, we've lost our main protagonist. Now nah, we're just playing. The commander is obviously not so easily defeated. And as it turns out, our body was retrieved by the most unlikely of allies. Those familiar with the first game may remember running into a group called Cerberus on numerous occasions. Cerberus are a group of humans whose modus operandi is to accelerate and preserve the growth of the human race, through any means possible. This has seen them performing countless horrific and inhumane experiments on people, often seeing them labelled as terrorists. We took out many of their cells in the first game, 
So why would they want to help us now? Well, we actually get a brief glimpse of their motives right at the very start of the game, in the opening cutscene before the Normandy is vaporised, no less. There is a scene between a lady dressed in Cerberus attire, which is sort of a basically black and white space gear, and a man with very distinctive, perhaps even familiar looking, blue eyes dressed in a suit. They are discussing how Shepard is the missing piece in their plans against the Reapers due to their status as a symbol of hope for humanity and all other council races. But, I hear you asking, what good is a dead body, right? I mean, we clearly saw Shepard dead and floating through space, didn't we? Well, that is true. However, Cerberus gathered the best scientists from throughout the universe and, using a combination of cybernetics and video game wizardry, brought Shepard back to life in what is known as Project Lazarus. Gentlemen, we can rebuild him. We have the technology. The next thing we see is Shepard briefly waking up whilst lying on an operating table. We see the Cerberus lady from the opening scene standing over us alongside an unknown man, also in Cerberus attire. They exclaim that they did not expect us to be awake so soon, whilst also showing concern about the speed at which our heart rate is increasing and the rate of our brain activity. The lady, who we hear her colleague refer to as Miranda, orders that we are sedated. And because of how much of a badass we are, that doesn't work and our vitals continue to go off the charts. I just want to party! A second sedative is ordered and this seems to do the trick, with Shepard's vitals returning to a normal level before our eyes close and everything is calm again. When we next awaken, the scene is very different. We may be on the same operating table, however this time we are alone and can hear gunshots throughout the facility. A familiar voice speaks to us over a comlink. It is Miranda and she's telling us that the facility is under attack and that, despite our scars not being healed, we need to get moving, pretty sharpish. We rise to our feet, grab a pistol and our armour from a nearby locker, very convenient that, and leave the operating theatre to meet up with Miranda and escape the facility. We collect a thermal clip to load into our pistol and fight our way through a couple of rooms. At this point the enemies are simple mech troops, fairly weak robot humanoids, who are no match for the great Commander Shepard. Along the way we also collect our first heavy weapon of the game, the grenade launcher, and at this point, I think it's probably quite appropriate to discuss a difference between this game and Mass Effect 1, which is how weapons and weapon loadouts work. So in Mass Effect 1, you had your four or five types of weapon and you just carried them all around with you at the same time and could use them willy-nilly. That's right, yeah. But you only typically specced in skills for your specialised weapons, but you could still use all of them. Yeah. In Mass Effect 2, that is no longer the case. Your class dictates what weapon types you can use but Commander Shepard always has access to a heavy weapon as well. Oh, okay, okay. So I can only talk from experience on my class. I'm the Infiltrator, which is actually the same class that I used in Mass Effect 1 because you do get the opportunity to change class at the start of this game. Which I did actually do, I should mention at this point. I actually went for the Adept class this time round. So lots more biotic abilities and less shooting. But with the Infiltrator, I have access to the Sniper Rifle, the SMG and the Heavy Pistol. But for example, your adept, you probably only have pistol and SMG. Pistol, SMG, uh, yes, for now. Although I did unlock some research schematics for a shotgun. That's not to say I can use it, but... Uh... Means nothing, yeah. Right, okay, okay. Your party can use it if you decide to build it, but you, you can only use pistols and SMGs because you're an adept. Fine, cool. Yeah, yeah. And heavy weapons. To be fair, I spent most of Mass Effect 1 using my pistol, so I'm not too bummed out about that, and I'm really kind of looking forward to getting to grips with how the biotics work in this game. They seem to kind of perform a lot better than they did in Mass Effect 1. Yeah, you've got similar sort of spells, I was going to call them. You've got similar powers, but they... Um they look better and do better stuff, basically. I've noticed that some of the powers in Mass Effect 1, you would just click on them and you could do things like lift them or pull them in the air and stuff. Whereas this one, you kind of fire a ball of energy towards them and only once the ball of energy makes contact, do they lift. 
And I think that that kind of enables you to do cooler stuff like shoot around corners and things like that with the game. Yeah, so you, you need to be careful because you can still hit objects and that'll yeah. ruin it. A little bit further into the facility, we meet up with a Cerberus soldier who is pinned down by more mechs. The soldier knows who we are, but we are yet to be introduced to him. We help him take out the mechs before he introduces himself. His name is Jacob, and he is a Cerberus operative with biotic capabilities. Space Matilda powers, if you will. We tell him that we are looking for Miranda, and he agrees to help us escape the facility. He's quite cagey at first, refusing to reveal too much about the facility and what the motives are for bringing Shepard back, but he is another gun, so we roll with it for the time being. As Shepard and Jacob are dusting themselves off after the fight with the mechs, Jacob receives a radio call from someone called Wilson asking for assistance. As it turns out, Wilson is the man that was with Miranda in the operating theatre when we woke up briefly, and is the chief medical technician of the facility. He asks us to hurry to the server rooms to save him, as he is under fire from the mechs and we duly oblige. We clear out the mechs who had surrounded him and heal up his leg which had been shot in the gunfire. He explains that the facility mechs had all been made hostile, and that he was in the server room to try and reverse this, although he was not successful. Jacob calls him out, asking how he was able to access the mech servers when his clearance didn't allow it. Wilson doubles down on his explanation that he was just trying to fix things, but is acting suspiciously, seeming keen to escape the facility as soon as possible, even suggesting that we should abandon Miranda and save ourselves. Even though this guy is clearly up to something, it is agreed that, for the time being at least, we should just get to safety. Before heading on our way, Jacob's conscience finally gets the better of him, and he comes clean that the facility we are in is owned by Cerberus, and that they were the reason Shepard is alive today. We fight our way through some more mechs before finally arriving at the shuttle bay. Wilson goes to open the shuttle bay door, and as it opens, Miranda is standing there, seemingly unharmed. Before Wilson has time to blurt out his surprise, Miranda puts a bullet between his eyes. Jacob is shocked, as the pair have known Wilson for years, but Miranda is cold and calculated, explaining that it was Wilson who had betrayed them, and that he, therefore, deserved it. At this point, Shepard, Miranda, and Jacob all escape in a shuttle, leaving the remaining mechs and the facility behind. It's on this shuttle journey back to uh, where we're heading that actually some interesting stuff goes down. And I think this is um, sort of where if you've started the game fresh without importing a character in from the first one, you're, you're sort of setting the scene for the world here because we get asked some questions um, sort of under the proviso of a test to make sure that we are still Shepard at this point. Yeah, it's a little bit like when Geralt's getting interrogated at the beginning of The Witcher 2 where they ask you to kind of fill in the blanks of the events of the first game a little bit. It also happens in The Witcher 3 when you're sat in the bath um, when you're just about to meet the Emperor, you get asked about what happened in The Witcher 2. It's interesting in this instance because I think there was one choice that we both made, which was at the very end of the game you're meant to sort of pick who your favoured council member would be out of Anderson and Nudina. That's right, yes, yeah, yeah. I choose Anderson. And I chose the option of, I'm a soldier, I'm going to stay out of it. I thought that defaulted Udina as the choice. Yes, I remember you saying that, actually, as the game wrapped up on our last one, yeah. Yeah, and what actually happens is, and I don't know why, but it actually asked me the question in this, and I got to pick. Oh, what, you got your choice again between Udina and Anderson? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Because I was neutral in the first game. And uh, at first this worried me because I was like, hang on, is my character imported properly then? So I actually went back and did the final Saren boss fight again and chose Udina. No way! Oh my god! (laughs) But then when I chose Udina, I got a voice line that I'd never heard before. So I was like, no, I definitely didn't do this. And then I actually went back and listened to the last episode we did and confirmed that it was actually the neutral ending I picked. Interesting. Okay, okay. And so I picked Udina at this point because that was kind of what I was expecting. 
and I, what I think canonically would make sense. If I'd stayed out of it, Udina would have won the vote because he's a politician and knows yeah. how to sort of... slimy. Exactly. So I picked Udina. But the other thing that was very key that's sort of said in this shuttle is that we get confirmation that we were actually out of action for two years on that operating table during Project Lazarus. That's right, yeah. So we've gone from being a month after the events of the first game to now two years later. Crazy times. But after this shuttle journey, we arrive at a new Cerberus facility where we are quickly ushered into a room so that we can meet with the head of Cerberus, the Elusive Man. The Elusive Man is the blue-eyed man in a suit that we saw in the intro cutscene that I mentioned earlier, and we do not meet him face to face. A hologram of our body is sent to wherever it is the Elusive Man is situated, which resembles a large windowless room staring out over a spacey vista. And going back to what you said earlier about uh, the planet visuals looking stunning in the wreckage of the Normandy, yeah. you want to talk about a view. This guy's office, man. Whoa. Hell of an office, man. Hell of a desk, hell of a view. Lovely, open space. Just looks like you're just floating around. It's lovely. It feels so lovely to be here tonight. What a beautiful art. Give yourselves a round of applause. You're so lovely. Everyone's so lovely. So we're meeting with him, and he explains that the motive behind Cerberus bringing Shepard back is essentially that he does not believe the Council is taking the Reaper threat seriously and therefore feels the need to take the fight into his own hands. He explains that human colonies have been disappearing, seemingly into thin air, and that he wants to know what is going on. He believes that it may have something to do with the Reapers, and wants us to go check out the site of the latest abduction to see if we can find any clues about who may be behind the disappearances. With new instructions, we head to the shuttle, along with Miranda and Jacob, to go and scope out Freedom's Progress, the latest human colony to disappear. Before leaving, we have the opportunity to know Jacob and Miranda a little better. And at this stage, Miranda is pretty much a closed book. However, Jacob reveals to us that he used to be in the Alliance military before becoming disillusioned with their methods, eventually joining Cerberus, who he perceived to at least be doing something, even if their methods were at times questionable. The trio land on Freedom's Progress and begin scouting the area, noting how it looks like the whole colony just got up and left in the middle of dinner, with no trace of a fight or any resistance. After a bit more exploring, the trio run into some mechs, who were initially programmed to protect the colonists, but had seemingly had their programming changed to now attack all organic life. After fighting our way through these, we eventually enter a room where three quarians are looking at some data pads. Everyone draws their weapons, but before the shit can hit the fan, a familiar figure steps forward, recognising Shepard. It is none other than our good friend and former crewmate Tally, who had helped us immensely in the first game by giving us evidence that incriminated Saren on Eden Prime. Although she is surprised to see us alive and working for Cerberus, she and her team agree to help us with our investigation, provided that we help them locate a quarian who has been staying at the colony as part of his pilgrimage, a young quarian called Vitor. The plan is that Tally and her crew will distract a portion of the mech forces, allowing Team Shepard to move towards Vitor more easily. The plan works pretty well, with Team Shepard fighting their way through the split mech forces before reaching a huge set of closed doors behind which lies a communications centre where Vitor is located. We open the doors and enter a large courtyard with the communications centre in front of us. However, before we enter, a large mech with a heavy shield and armour plating appears and is not in a friendly mood, brutally taking out a few of the quarians. No parlaying here, it's time to take this mother out. Yeah, and this sort of acts as the first boss fight of the game, although this enemy will become a mob a bit later on, so it's not, not really... Yeah, it's an introduction to uh, some of the deeper mechanics of the combat, I would say. Yes, I agree, and what's pertinent to say about the combat is, in Mass Effect 1, it is a cover shooter, but you can sort of get away with just being in the open because it's, uh, it's not quite as sophisticated. Yeah, yeah. Whereas Mass Effect 2 
is much more cover shooter focused and it's it's works a lot more like that if you're out in the open you get caught you'll get taken down in not very long at all you have to be in cover you have to pick your shots and uh it's a very different game but i i think a very good game for it i I loved the switch up in combat compared to mass effect one yeah agreed and uh because this enemy has the holy trinity of shields armor and health uh, this is actually a good way to practice how you can take out all of these things and the most efficient way of doing so will you may have had some cool ways to do this with your biotics but for me as just an infiltrator the shields i found best to take out with rapid fire from my smg just gets them down quickly the armor i have the incinerate ability which basically burns through armor really easily and leaves some damage over time on afterwards so that's really handy plus as my main weapon is a sniper rifle that gets very good at taking out armor the further i get into the game uh, and then health obviously you can do whatever you want headshots are the for the win for me but uh do you have any special tactics being a biotic that you use to take out shields and armor yeah absolutely so my overcharge ability was really good at tearing through the initial shield uh, that he had over them next you've got the armor plating to go so i moved over to i think it's called warp which kind of like alters things at a molecular level and destroys it and then by the time you've got to the health bar despite the fact that all the bars are the same length the health bar just goes in a zip because I suppose at that point, technically, like, yeah, it's all critical hit sort of thing now that you've exactly, broken through yeah. the armor. Yeah, good stuff. Satisfying fight. And as you say, a really good method of showing you kind of the rock, paper, scissors of the game in terms of what weapons you should be using against what different colored health bars. Very, very cool. And the other thing that's quite, I can't remember if this is in Mass Effect 1. I certainly didn't use if it is. But you can actually like send your squad mates over to certain areas and they'll hold that area until you tell them to move again as well. That was in one, yeah. I felt I just never used it. (laughs) Me either, really. Yeah, it was very rare that I used it apart from like maybe the final Saren fight when he was running around on his uh, kind of green goblin hoverboard type thing because i was trying to get my operators to kind of like actually take cover for once rather than just standing in the open getting shot i should point out i was on hard mode at this point so the challenge was a little ramped up as well i don't think you need to bother with that on normal well i just i convinced saren to kill himself so i didn't have to do that fight it's all good oh i forgot yeah yeah yeah. i forgot just how branching that game was yeah but yes very good fight as we say but quite easy not too bad yeah i mean it was like the first boss of elden ring it's a fight that turns into a kind of a regular enemy later exactly just don't stay in the open so with that fight over we are now free to enter the communication center and talk to vitor and see if we can find out what has happened here it is clear upon entry that vitor is quite a nervous character and is seemingly in a state of deep shock over what he has seen speaking incoherently and seemingly not listening to what we are saying Now, there are two ways that we can deal with this. And this is going to be the first time of many times that one of us says something like this, because being a paragon and a renegade, this game branches in many different ways. So for me, as a paragon, basically when Vitor's going on his rant, I just use my Omnitool to calmly turn off all the screens in front of him so that he'd lose focus on that and could focus on me. Of course, yeah. I'm going to ask the question. I happen to know what happens because I did it in my first playthrough, but what happened when you did it, Will? So in this scenario, I pulled out my gun and I shot the screens instead. (laughs) And this option did pop up previously when I played this game but it didn't work out the same i was kind of assuming that if i pulled that trigger he would just shoot the guy in the head um so i wasn't actually expecting him to shoot the screens to turn them off i was i was ready to commit murder no yeah that's what you think is going to happen but uh, actually no it is just uh, he shoots the screen you need to talk to the guy and this actually brings up a good opportunity to talk about what i think is one of the most cool new mechanical additions to the game which is what's called the interruption mechanic is that what it's actually called yeah that's what it's called the interruption mechanic and this what this actually is is that in certain scenarios 
a prompt will come up on your screen that you can either left click or right click if you're on PC or left trigger, right trigger if you're on console or controller. And you can do a sort of ultimate paragon or renegade ability. And it can be a simple sort of thing like we've just described, like I turn off the screen, will shoot the screen instead. But there's other opportunities where it's one or the other. So we'll probably get into this a bit more when there's some more choices in the game. But there are some that only Will will have and there are some that only I will have. And I think that's going to be an interesting dynamic as we play through. Yeah, and they're all optional as well. So you don't necessarily need to pull that kind of like OTT trigger. You can just, in some cases, it very much is the trigger. Yeah, it's a cool mechanic. Nice addition to the game. So Vitor explains that he saw the entire colony be abducted by an alien race known as the Collectors. He explains that the reason there was no sign of a struggle is that the Collectors send in a swarm of robotic insects which paralyse their targets with a nerve toxin, allowing them to just be taken away. Collected, if you will. Not only does he explain all of this to us, but he has even pieced together CCTV footage of the abductions taking place, and has the data on his Omnitool. With all of this now explained, we have a choice to make. Miranda wants us to take Vitor back to the Cerberus facility for further interrogation. However, Tally wants us to leave Vitor with her, so that he can be taken care of by quarry and doctors, stating that we can have his Omnitool, which contains all of the data on the collectors. I, naturally as the Paragon, let Vitor go with Tally and just took the Omnitool. Um, what, what did you do, Will? I unapologetically <laughs> just kind of said, no, he's coming with us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Tally was not very impressed. She kind of left saying that she hoped we got everything we needed and she clearly was pretty pissed with us. Yeah, and uh, I think that you get an email later on on your personal computer that tells you exactly what happens to Vitor and I believe that his, his mind gets fried because of the stress. Oh God, yeah, I was kind of expecting an outcome like that, to be yeah. honest. There's no way you make a decision like that and they're like, yeah, and then everything was fine and he went back to Tally. It's like, no, no. With our choice made, we return to the Cerberus facility and once again meet with the elusive man. He explains that he had suspicions that the collectors were involved and that the data from Vitor confirmed his suspicions. He also speculates that the collectors are working for the Reapers, although at this stage he does not know why they would be abducting humans in such large quantities. With this new evidence, we are given our main mission of the game, recruit a team who are capable of helping us take on the collectors, and he gives us four dossiers of potential candidates to recruit, and says that while we're off getting a team together, he will continue to monitor the human colonies, and will try to get some more information about the collectors, as well as their connection to the Reapers. Before sending us on our merry way, the elusive man has one more surprise for us. To carry out our mission, we will need a ship and a pilot that we can trust. Hey, Commander. Just like old times, huh? That's right, Joker is back. And not only that, Cerberus has also commissioned and built an almost exact replica of our old ship, the Normandy. And they pay a lot of homage to this ship, don't they? There's lots of kind of slow, slow pans over the ship and lots of time to look at it and ogle all the different features it has. Yeah, and also a nice reveal where they're sort of talking and, um, and he goes, oh, we'll have to give it a name then. And then it pans out to the wing and it's just Normandy 2. It's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, Normandy SR2. Exactly. I, I really, really liked that. Yeah, the, the writing in that section was very sci-fi Hollywood movie style. Done really well. Exactly. And I love that ship as well. It's such a cool design. Like, I think it's wicked ship. So very cool. But I did say they're almost exact. And I say that because most everything has actually been improved in this new version of our beloved vessel. I'm talking better weapons, better armor better stealth system, better interior, better captain's quarters. I'll say that much. Damn straight. So with our new ship and a set of names to find and recruit, we once again set off on a quest to save the world. And that, dear listeners, is where we're going to leave it for this week. So with that, listeners, we come to the end of the show. 
We'll continue the Odyssey of Mass Effect 2 in next week's episode. And if you have enjoyed what you've listened to, you can, as always, find the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts by searching for Total Pod Mode. We also post regular video content of our playthroughs, stream highlights, as well as the podcast on our YouTube channel, Total Pod Mode. You can also find us on Twitter slash X by searching for at Total Pod Mode, all one word. Or you can find me at Hoodafunk on X, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Hoodafunk. And you can find me on Twitter slash X at MrBames, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash MrBames underscore TPM. And please do go check out those social medias, give us a follow, give us a five star rating on those podcast platforms. It really helps us out, and really means a lot to us. Couldn't have said it better myself, buddy. We really appreciate the support. But with that, we hope you enjoyed the show and we hope you join us again next week for another episode. Take care, everyone. Goodbye. Bye now.